Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Sounding the Shofar, the communal role in identifying and preventing violence. A keynote address delivered by special guest, Dr. Ilana Kavartin. I want you to get to know Dr. Kavartin. Some of you already know her very well as Ilana or as mom to one of her four children who are here enrolled in our Crescent Academy for the years which she served as the Rosh Lichut, as the head of all sorts of programs across the uh, western half of the United States for the Jewish Agency. Um, that was a joy and it was a sadness to lose you over the course of this past year. We've missed you and I had to come up with an excuse to bring you back. And this excuse is a really, it's a righteous one. It's a bittersweet one because it means that there's so much more work to do. And uh, I want to tell people about some of the parts of your professional world that they may or may not know. If they weren't at the Hanukkah monologues they, uh, that, in which you told your story, they might not know that you're a former serious gymnast. Uh, they might not know that you made Aliyah from the Soviet Union in 1987 to Israel. They might not know that you were formerly a commander and an officer in the IDF, that you have a BA in law and psychology, that you earned eventually an MA in conflict resolution from Bar Ilan and also a PhD in gender studies there. And that while you were in the Negev doing work there, you've done some incredible things in the world of women's empowerment and not just Zumba, which is really important for people who do Zumba, you know how important it can be, especially for women's empowerment uh, and for feeling good in our own bodies and souls, but especially in the world of coercive control, in domestic violence, and in problematic relationships across Israel and beyond. And we're so proud of you seeing your book out there we know that there is work to be done. Uh, I am a tireless advocate for your work uh, being translated to English. It is now being translated to English, which is deserving of great applause because it is in need of an English translation. Um, and uh, there is still some work to go getting the proper funding for that. So if you're moved by this, I am not shy about saying that uh, beyond the funds that we are looking forward to raising and already have raised through the concert this evening, um, there is still some funding to be raised specifically so that the stories that we're going to talk about tonight can be told and read in English. So I want to start by saying something about those stories and opening this up to you and to the possibility of telling stories. We called this session Sounding the Shofar, and we did so because you told me, Ilana, that you are a shofar, a, a, a horn to sound the blast and to amplify the voices of the women who are not being heard in the quiet and scary places where they are in their relationships or where they may have been in their relationships. And usually at Seudash Lishit, we study text. And I'm reminded from my friend and colleague, Casper Terkel, who is this awesome um, both author and studier of all things ritual, that it's the case that any text that you treat as sacred or think of as sacred is sacred text. 
all text that we treat as sacred is sacred text. Now, where Casper goes with that is that he has a podcast and a huge fan base um, called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Okay, so that's, that's one universe and one way to go. He has a dear friend at Harvard Divinity School who does this with Jane Austen, who treats it as sacred text and studies it with Lectio Divina. But I know that you, Ilana, you study the stories of women who are in these relationships that are marked by coercive control as sacred text. And that's how we are going to treat them this evening as we hear them. So I turn this over to you to begin sharing with us these sacred texts. And I know that we're going to start with one of these stories. Yep. So hi, everyone. And thank you so much for inviting me. This is such a schut to be back here after all these years that I spent um, in this amazing community. And thanks to everyone who accepted the invitation and came. And um, I just want to say that just feel free to ask anything you want to ask. I just landed from Israel, you know, two and a half days ago. I'm sure you have questions and you're curious. So just really feel free and I'll do my best to uh, bring all the information to you other than my specific work. And um, I just want to say that we had the most wonderful time in this community um, as a family. So it's really a special community uh, to me in my heart. So really a big schut. And I want to say something about Shofar or about being the voice of. Um, when I was a little girl, I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I was, since I was 10, I had a, I had a Gemara teacher who said that I was a Talmidat Chachamim because I really, I loved Gemara and I studied it and it was my favorite thing. And that's when I decided that I'm going to be a lawyer when I grow up. And I actually did. <laughs> you know, it's those things that you decide when you're 10. And when I, um, and, and I think the reason I decided to do that is because of the feeling that I need to help bring justice to the world, that I need to help make something wrong right. That was, you know, how I felt as a child, and that's still what I feel today um, as a grown-up and as a professional. And when I started my, my uh, career as a lawyer, I quickly shifted and understood that I want to do women's rights. I didn't even know what it was, but I decided that would be my, my specialty, my niche. And um, just like Rabbi said, I was meeting these women, and in a minute, I'll, I'll share with you how it all started, but I really felt that their voices are not heard, and I am like a shofar, but also like a translator. Like I take their stories, their factual stories, and translate them into the word of law and give them justice back. That was kind of like the circle that I was imagining. So if that makes sense. Mm, yes. So I'll start by reading a story from my book. My book has um, a few stories of these women and I'm starting with this story because this is the one that set me on the journey uh, of researching this, this whole phenomena that I ended up calling coercive control. And I didn't know about this until I met her, so. in big print, so I hope it. He's locking me in from all directions, Erica's story. We've been married for eight years. I knew him to be a jealous person. Everyone says it's my fault that I made my own bed to, lay, to lie on, but he wasn't like this at first. He became more and more suffocating as time went on. In the beginning, we had it so good, but things started getting worse after he got in trouble in his last job. 
Everything changed after that. He really is a wonderful person. And that's why I'm hurting so much because we can save our marriage because we do love each other and are raising our children and are trying to give them whatever they need. Everyone has their own story. He knows I have nowhere to go and he knows he can exert control uh, over me. He's like my father. I keep telling him it would be easier for him to let me do the grocery shopping on my own, to run errands on my own, but he doesn't let me. I've had my driver's license for two years now and the car keeps sitting there by the house and he doesn't let me drive it or leave the house. He tells me, put all your leggings away, throw away all your thongs. I agreed once and since then it's became more and more suffocating. The hair as well. Black hair looks so good on me, but I dyed blonde because that's what he likes. He doesn't allow anything else. He's locking me in. I'm really suffering. I don't have my, any friends. I gave up so many friends because he gets annoyed when they keep calling me. He gets upset when they call me. That's why no one ever comes over to visit me because he's just bad company. He doesn't make my friends feel welcome. I talk to the women here in town, but it's not the same thing. They see my situation, how he's locking me in. And so they ask me, so is he going to let you out? This is how he locked me in. This isn't something new, he tells me. It's your own problem. I keep, I keep telling him that I'm going to get up and go. And he replies, go ahead and leave. I don't know what he'd do if I left. Would he want to change things or let me go? I don't want to break up the marriage. I want to be with him. And if not, then I want to raise my children and leave, and leave with my head held high. But I'm afraid. It's not that I'm afraid of him. He's not threatening me. I just don't want to be naive and I want to know my rights. I want to know if I can raise my children on my own. I want to know that if there's a fight, heaven forbid, and I need to get up and leave, that I know what I'm walking into. I can't start my legal processes from here. I can't even get out of here. He knows every move of mine. He's always around and calling me on the phone all the time and asking where I am. Just as an example, I'm here by myself and I want to go see my mom for a bit and he won't allow me to do so. He says, you're not going alone. I was at an evening outing with all of the women from the Zumba class. Everyone was telling her story and I kept quiet. I looked at him, every one of them holding their car keys in their keychains. I felt as though they were dignified, that they had something to be proud of. One time I really had it. He was at work. I called him and I told him I'd had enough, that I wanted out. I told the older, the older uh, children, get dressed, we're going. They were so happy. We could go to the play area at the mall. We could eat at McDonald's. I picked up my, young, my youngest from preschool and we went. There was a bus at 2.30. I called him and told him that I had enough and he needed to let me breathe a little. He said, no. I told him I was going. So he said, if you're leaving, don't bother coming back. And I said, okay. I don't know, I had the courage to do that. We boarded the bus and I felt as though we were coming out of prison. I felt like I didn't even care what would happen later. We got there, we had so much fun, we ate, it was a blast. On the way back, I called him and he didn't pick up the phone. He sent me a message, you're not coming back home, stay wherever you are. We came back at 6.30, I went upstairs and my heart was pounding. I asked him to open up and told him I wanted to talk to him. He didn't answer for a whole hour. There are many more things my husband does to hurt me. He never asks for my opinion 
Why can't he ask me? Maybe I do know the answer. He thinks I'm stupid. When I try to express my opinion, even if it's about the news, he doesn't let me. I can see how he's trying to lower my confidence. Even when the children ask me, Mom, please buy this. I have to wait until he gets back home and he can give me some money. I don't have a say in anything. I have to tell them we need to ask Dad about everything. I'm just like his daughter. If I ever ask him what's going on, he says nothing, as if I'm his daughter. But I'm available to him at night. I lay next to him, and, and he gets whatever he wants whenever he wants it. I'm generally the one who gives all the love and warmth to the kids. I'm the one who kisses them when it hurts. I'm the one who creates pleasant environment at home. I bring the family together. I'm alone with the children a lot. He doesn't know how to bathe them or put them to bed. I don't remember whether he's ever changed the diaper, but I don't care. I love doing it. I adore my children. I don't do anything for, for them because I have to. Even if I stay home with them, this is my life. I want to give them the very best. I would do anything for my children's well-being. But I also tell myself, I'm going to get wrinkles. I'm going to get older. And what do I have to show for myself? Life can end in an instant. I want to do everything, all the things I love, Zumba and all the other stuff. I have so much fun going out and moving my body. I want to go out more. I want to go to the gym. I want to buy clothes for my children and for myself. What, is that a crime? My children will grow up and leave the house, and who's going, and, and who's going to be with me then? The walls? He's active. He has a life. He's working. And what about me? Sometimes I put my head in the closet and just cry. I'm in distress, and I don't know what to do. I'm not scared of getting a divorce. I can be alone. The only thing I'm scared of are the steps until then. The social worker tells me no one can help me unless there is actual physical violence. And then they, and then they can take me to a shelter for battered women. I think a lot of people are taking deep breaths. It's a hard story to hear. And I know you've sat and listened to a lot of stories. We'll get in a few minutes, hopefully, to some of the patterns that come through when you listen to so many of those stories. But first, I want to ask you, what is it about stories like this one, this one that drew you in, and stories like it that light the spark, that lit the spark for you to do this particular work? You know, sometimes I, I give lectures about my book or about this work, and um, there was this one student who came up to me and she said, if you never met Erika, right, the one that I read the story, what would you be doing today? I mean, this was 15 years ago, and, you know, I didn't have the answer. It was like my life mission, in a sense, that was waiting for me. So I don't know what I would do if I didn't meet her. But the way this story came about is that I was a lawyer. I was practicing in the morning, and I was teaching Zumba in the evening. That's why she keeps talking about Zumba. And as I was teaching Zumba, I was meeting a lot of women in different environments. And they were dancing and moving their bodies, and it opened a lot of conversation at the end of every class. And they started opening up about their relationships, about their families, and things like that. And that's how she reached out to me. I mean, after one of the classes that she kept going to and saying, thank you so much for an hour of freedom a week every time she left. She reached out after a few months, and she said, I want to talk to you. And I said, come to my office. I had you know, a law office in my home, and she said, I can't leave home. 
you have to come to me. And I said, what do you want to do? So she said, I want to break the walls. And I remember her saying this 15 years ago and setting me on this journey. And that's the reason that I decided to come to her house and hear her story, but feel also a little bit helpless because what she told me, I mean, the story that you just heard isn't something that you see in the law, isn't something that as a lawyer, I can go and protect. And I felt very, I mean, I've, you know, I've studied for all these years and I'm a lawyer, but I can't help her. What, what am I supposed to do? You know, that's how it all started. I think that there's something profoundly scary I hear in what you're saying about you're feeling helpless because you're trying to respond to her helplessness. What is it like for you as a lawyer to feel helpless? You're a very smart person. You've done a lot of things that a lot of smart people do, but you didn't just give up. You pursued this. So what was it that had you keep going? So I think I had a, I had a moment sitting in her living room you know, for hours listening to her story, it's obviously longer than this and more detailed. And I was thinking, what does she need? I mean, what does she need me to be? Or what does she need the world to give her in this situation? Theoretically, I could say, you know, as a lawyer, there's nothing I can do with this. You should go get therapy. You should decide if you want to leave home. I mean, I, I have no connection into this situation. But as I was listening, was thinking that sometimes things that don't exist, we need to create them from nothing. And so what I was hearing in her story is that it was near what the law tell, tells us about domestic violence. So it's not exactly, it's near. It's other aspects of it. And I decided to find out if there are more women like her or is she the only one? And again, I've never heard anything like this. And I was a lawyer for many years then you know, and I have friends or family or colleagues. I mean, I know people, I think, I thought I know, I knew couples, right? You know, who, who knows what happens behind closed doors. And I wanted to find out how prevalent this phenomena is. What is it exactly? How can I name it? Um, there's something about law. I mean, again, I mean, I come from this profession, but to me, to give words or to give meaning or to give a framing to a phenomena makes you feel that it actually exists, that you're not imagining, that you're not alone, that you're not the only one experiencing this. So given a name to something is the first thing you do in law when you create something from nothing. And that's what I wanted to do when I met her. And so many languages, attorney is given the, the name advocate, avogado, it's given this language of, of ad advocacy, but you can't advocate until you know what you're advocating for, for your client or for your potential client. And it needed a name um, and it needs something to pin to because the law is entirely built around that idea. So I hear you and I hear you, you were already searching for patterns in these stories and, and knowing that it, it wasn't, I hear you knowing already in listening to her story, she couldn't be the only person experiencing this. So how did you discover other women? How did you go about finding other women with similar stories? Yeah, so I was wondering if she's the only one or there are more women like this, but I was really hoping that there are no more women like her. And at first I, I put up ads. I mean, this is what you do in research in university. You put up ads and you ask for people to come for an interview. 
but I didn't know what to ask for. I mean, what am I, go- am I going to say? Do you feel suffocated in your marriage? Do you feel like you don't make any decisions? Can you not control your financial assets? Like, I don't, I don't even know what to ask, right? I couldn't call these people to come for an interview. So my first ads were not answered. So at first, no, no women would call me. And then I thought, okay, so it doesn't exist. I remember coming to my advisor saying, you know, Rit, there are no more women like her. She's the only one said, well, you know, that's not exactly the truth. And so I started doing what I'm doing right now, telling her story. I was sitting on a train. I was going, you know, to someone's house. I was having Shabbat dinner. I was meeting with friends. And every time I met someone, they'd be, what are you doing today, Ilana? And I would say, oh, you know, I met this amazing woman. And I would tell her story. And one by one, everybody responded. I mean, you can imagine, you can guess. People started saying, I know someone like that. My mother was like this. My sister is like that. My neighbor is like that. My colleague is like that. I had this in my first marriage, right? And these stories kept piling up and names and phone numbers more that I could even reach or interview. And I started following up with all of these uh, names, you know, north, south, center, all over the country and meeting these women and hearing their stories. And the, the hard part is that that story has never been told before because it isn't a phenomenon. It doesn't have a name. It's just something that you think you're experiencing that is normal in your marriage until you sound it out. And woman by woman, they would tell their story and be, you know, I've never told this to anybody. This is the first time I'm telling this to someone. Is this normal? Am I normal? Is this everyone's marriage? How am I in the spectrum of marriages? And I felt, you know, other than being a shofar, like I was a canvas on which the story was imprinted for the first time. And for the first time, when you hear yourself tell a story or a list of behaviors and practices, you only then can hear the pattern echoing back to you and the fact that it's an actual phenomena or something that is pathological in your marriage. It's the first time that, you know, you experience it in that, in that moment. And already by telling that story and opening up that door and listening to that person, you are countering your helplessness by doing something because you made that person feel less alone because you told them that there's at least one other person in this world who is experiencing it. And as it turns out, unfortunately, there are so many other someones who are experiencing it. And as you've learned these stories, it turns out it's not limited to one kind of person. It's all kinds of people. Um, what kinds of patterns do you see? What, what makes for this phenomenon? Are there rules to it? Is there a set of guidelines that you see either legally or that you've made into the definition of what is coercive control? And is it always the same? Does it always look or sound the same? So first of all, I think the most phenomenal thing that happened in these, you know, interviews and gatherings is I was wondering why would a woman tell her stories to a stranger, right? And these are not simple stories to tell. I realized that the fact that I said, I am a lawyer, I'm writing this, I'm going to take your voice out, I'm going to do something about that, already made them feel 
you know, they, they really were straightening in, in their seats saying, what I say matters. If I tell my story, it, it might help someone else. And actually they all said, oh, you know, my story is not so bad. Maybe there's another woman I can help too. Um, and so that's the reason that they were even telling it to me, and which was, you know, really um, a shock. But it, ha it really happens. And, and that's, that's another thing that I wanted to kind of like frame. I wanted to say, you know what? This woman, she comes from, you know, the southern periphery in Israel. She's not educated and her husband is so-and-so ethnicity. And this is what this phenomenon looks like. I, want, I really wanted to frame it and to say it's as far of me as possible. My friends, my neighbors cannot be one of those. That's what I wanted to say. But as the names kept coming and as I was interviewing more and more women and every person that I met and every time that I gave a lecture in a conference, 20% of women would come up to me and say, this is my story. I realized that it really crosses demographies and um, intellectual, uh, basic, just, just everything. You can't frame it into one community. It's in the city. It's in the, it's in the rural areas. It's people with with kids, without, older, younger, orthodox, secular, everyone. So I couldn't frame it. Uh, I could only understand that it's, if there is a marriage, this could happen because of the power relations. So that's what, you know, the only, the only framing I could do. But I could maybe say some of the patterns that came up. Yeah, I think at some point, I mean, I'm imagining as a lawyer, right? You're saying, I, I have to put something on it because I have to be able to eventually, if I'm going to advocate for somebody and say, something is wrong here, right? Something is, is legally justifiably, I can point to these things and say something's being violated, right? Within a sacred relationship and within a, a legal partnership that's inbound. So what are the things that you point to that are the violations in that relationship if you can't point to physical abuse in every one of these relationships? Yes, so um, the law against domestic violence in Israel, and I'm sure it's the same in the States, although lists all types of violence, really relates to physical violence as the main core of this offense. And I mean, it makes sense, right? As people, we want to see evidence. If we don't see blood or a scratch, or if she didn't go to the ER, nothing had happened, right? That's our feeling. So really, we look at the law as something that's very physical, evidence-based, has a, a, a beginning and an end. That's how we can go to court. That's how we feel as lawyers and as people and as culture. But what started happening is that if women look at their relationships going back 10 years, 20 years, you know, a few months, whatever, 30 years sometimes, they see a pattern of behavior that makes them smaller and smaller over time. And the areas of life in which coercive control happens are it's a range. I mean, there is coercive control that's verbal. There are people who really like every day he would curse her, humiliate her, make her feel small, but just to say words, not even screaming, not even anything, you know, look, looking so big, just like small words every day. And one woman said it to me and it's, and it's so true. It's like water on a rock. Every drop that falls, you don't see anything on the rock, but after years, you'll see a dent in the rock and that's irreversible. That's how these words were. The second type was financial, and not every woman was experiencing this, but a lot of them didn't have any control of the assets of the, of the family. They didn't know where the money is. They didn't know how much there is, what's the debt, how to even have access to it. They had to ask for money. 
But outside, they would have big homes, big cars, all the fancy clothes. Everything looked normal because if she asked, she would get it. But she had to ask. She couldn't control it, right? That was the second aspect. The third one was sexual. Just like Erika said, she was available to him every night whenever he wanted to. And these women didn't know until we had a conversation that they could say no. They felt, they said to me, but he's like my husband. What do you mean? I need to be with him whenever, whenever he wants me to. You know, and they had no idea that there's another choice. And the other aspects were they would decide what they would learn. You know, if you go to university or what profession, they would decide where they would work, if they would even work. They would decide. They would decide whom they would talk to, which family and friends they would communicate with. Sometimes they'll go into their phones, delete contacts, they'll go into their social media, follow them there. Or these daily phone calls, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Now, if you hear this every day, you end up not leaving home anymore because you don't want to get these phone calls saying, oh, I'm out in the store, I'm out at a friend's, so you rather stay home and say, I'm just, I'm just at home, you know? And also the isolation starts because if you go and see your friends, right? Like she said, she went to see her Zumba friends, right? And they're all talking and telling stories. What is she going to say? I'm suffering, I'm suffocating, I can't breathe anymore? That's not a good story. So she stopped going because she has nothing to talk to them about. So it's not like he was isolating her. She was even isolating herself. And it goes on and on. So these are the patterns that came from all of the stories. Not all the women experienced everything. They experienced some chunks of every um, area. What were you able, we're definitely going to, uh, I, I see a few people kind of, nudging towards hands, I promise. I'll leave both formal time for questions and also I'll ask Ilana about her availability after this that we I can let you know where you can um, ask her now and of course we'll make her contact information available for everyone. I, I wanna ask you, uh, before we get to questions from our group convened here, I have a few more for you directly. One of them is, what was it that you were eventually able to achieve legally? Where are you now in terms of trying to figure out what this all looks like to the Israeli legal system? Is there anything? Yeah, it's going it's to be a little less hope now that we're going to talk about the government, okay? So I, I drafted a law according to what I learned from, uh, from all these stories because, like I said, this is what I know how to do. I take a factual story, I turn it into a legal story, so I turn it into a law that doesn't exist. It's a new law against coercive control. And I started pushing it in 2018. And unfortunately, since then, the governments have changed, I think, five times. And it was hard to push laws in general and let alone something that has to do with women's rights. It was always said, oh, women's rights, wait a minute, we have more pressing issues to discuss right now. So that's the situation with this law. But when I was here, 2021 and 2022, I heard this law being passed in, I think, the state of Hawaii and New York changing the domestic violence laws here in the U.S. in the middle of the pandemic, which gave me a lot of hope. But they added coercive control as a standalone alone offense that doesn't come with the physical violence, which is incredible. So that's a precedent that we want to take back to Israel, hopefully. Yeah, I was, I was about to ask you about that. In uh, anticipation of this, I was doing a little bit of research about the United States. There's a wonderful and 
frankly, scary podcast called Something Was Wrong. It's a really uh, great journalistic look at some of these coercive and controlling relationships that take place in the United States. And it does seem like we're slowly edging towards a little bit more legal recognition in the United States, but we suffer uh, from that drip by drip issue of uh, state by state uh, legal passing. We'll see what happens over the years. Going to that issue for a minute, you spent three years recently here in the United States. I'm wondering what you saw while you were here um, of your work, what you did of your work here, or what you did in meeting other people who did this kind of work or do this kind of work around domestic violence, around uh, legal work with coercive control and relationships. Do you see do you see possibilities for formal bridges? Do you see interesting contrasts or commonalities that are worth our knowing more about? And is there anything we should know as a Jewish community in particular about Jewish communities here versus or in comparison with Israel? Okay, I'll try to remember all the pieces yeah, of, the, of, pieces. of the long question. I can question. break it down. I wrote it. So uh, first of all, the years that I spent here, I heard more stories like this. And I think it surprised me and saddened me, but then I realized, you know, this is, this is the world. But really, in the U.S., I heard women expressing these feelings and having these behaviors um, in their relationships. And in Israel, the reason is, or at least I thought, or at least this, this was the theory, it was the honor theory and the fact that there's a power relations in the rabbinical uh, law, which is that men can give uh, divorce to women only willfully. So this power relation from the get-go of the marriage is something that seeps into the relationship. I thought that was one of the reasons why Israel is special in that. So Israel is not special in that. And even in the U.S., this phenomenon exists. And in terms of numbers, by the way, it's one in five. 20% of marriages have coercive control. Not all of them as, as, as extreme and pathological that it should be illegal, but it happens. I mean, I, I don't want to say look around the room. It's kind of scary, but really think about your life. It's everywhere. It's, it's 20% of, uh, of couples. And so, you know, this, this is something, something to know in terms of, uh, of bridges. And going back to the room, I realize, I guess, from teaching Zumba, but really in general, going around the world talking about coercive control everywhere that I could, in person and on Zoom <laughs> because of COVID. I, I always say that small communities are the first responders. I mean, these are the people that you see every day. These are the people that you notice small changes of the stress that you don't even notice, but you will notice a small change and you can ask the question. And just like when I was listening to the women, they were imprinting their stories for the first time, be that person that would hear that story for the first time, because it's really, it's 90% of the solution. It doesn't matter what the woman decides to do later on. Maybe she'd, she'll decide to leave. Most of the ones that I interviewed, by the way, did not leave. But knowing where you are, knowing that your story is not something that has to do with you, but a phenomenon and a pathology is already a huge thing. And so listening is something that people in small communities, in Jewish communities, and tikkun olam is something that we live by. And this is, this is one of them. This is the first one. Yeah, this is the last point I want to formally get to before we get a chance to speak 
and take a few questions from people who are in the room. I remember uh, about six or seven years ago, even before COVID, um, a general conversation. There was, I, I'm a big podcast person, so I'll keep referring back to it, but there was a, there's a wonderful uh, podcast. Do you get, does anyone remember Cracked Magazine? Is that a one? It was, it was Mad uh, Magazine, and then it was Cracked Magazine, then they had a podcast. There was a great conversation. Don't remember who the hosts were at the time, but they said something about uh, the statistics and the power of community. And in that conversation, they said that in the power of community, the difference is, I don't know why this is what stuck with me, he said, you can you can ask your friend how they're doing over and over again with their addiction, but unless you see them in the room, you can't smell the alcohol on their breath. And while that's a bit of a clunky and direct comparison, it's really stuck with me. It's a, it's a jarring and sensory, um, a, a very sensory heavy way of drawing a picture of what communities are capable of doing and why communities are, are so important. When we are in person with each other, as we now are again after COVID, we have the ability to do something, not just individually, but as whole community networks, which is to really, really see each other, to see each other, to to be near each other in ways that we can make observations that are not possible, micro observations that are really not possible unless we're with each other. So I wanna ask you going beyond what the small communities and first responders can do in a big community like ours, which gathers again and again and again, this has been a very busy weekend in our community, what is it that we can do on a communal level to raise awareness individually and as leaders well first of all what you're doing today is already raising awareness you're making a point you know talking about this phenomena i mean all of you heard about it today so just keep talking about it keep calling it a name keep giving it you know a basis that this is a phenomena this is something wrong this is something that exists and ha has a name and has a definition that that is already a lot second of all the the li listening piece and I always say, even when we're home or remote or on vacation or something like that, we should always choose the, you know, five or six women in our lives that we want to nudge. Nudnik, I don't know how to say it, but one of the women said it to me. It really stuck with me. She said, be a nudnikid, be a nudge. Because she said that at first she would not answer or she would not tell her story. But she said, you know, knock on my door the first time, I'd say everything is okay. Knock on my door the second time, everything is fine third time, I'm good, you know, but time number 41, I'll say, okay, I'll tell you my story, right? So don't be afraid to be a nudnik, don't be afraid to be a nudge and ask it over and over and over again and make sure that those women that you chose in your life are okay. Mm. I think that we are always striving because we're such a big community for that kind of intimacy and I would, I love that where we're landing here, again, as we open up to a few questions, is that the antidote to coercive control in intimate relationships is building better intimate relationships with our friends that can respond and tell us when to nudge, 
when to ask more, when to be there for someone, when to knock for the 41st time. So the answer is not not to be in intimate relationships. The answer is to be in more intimate relationships and to take care of one another carefully. So we're going to take a few minutes to uh, to go to some questions. I saw that there was one person over here. I saw that Jeff had a hand over here, and and uh, I see Anita and, and Gil also. We'll try to get to all four of those at least, then I'll take some more hands. And I also want to ask you now, are you around for a little bit, for a few minutes after? So Ilana's around for a little bit, and we have some time before the concert begins when we start Mariv after this. So we'll go we'll go to those four uh, in, in that order. Um, so I'll go to you first, if you could share a question nice and loud. Yeah, I'll repeat the question. The psychopathology behind the husband and behind the wife, this is not a normal situation. It's probably something socially is wrong. Like, has it been addressed, right? That was So, again, I don't want to disappoint you. I was really hoping that I will see, you know, the horns and the tails be behind the man that would be that coercive control, that the 20%, but they're not. They're just like you and me. And, and, um, I understand, and I really wanted to not agree with it. There's some of them are narcissists, but not all. And the women did not bring it on themselves that this relationship would happen. It was really something that was escalating with time from marriage or from formalization of the of the relationship onwards and got worse and worse with time. And because it's so slow, you don't notice it at the time. It's only something that you can look back at because it accumulates. Now, as a phenomena, it's something that we culturally allow. There are no physical marks. There's nothing that you can hide with the makeup. And so it keeps happening. And slowly she becomes half of herself. She's not the person that she was. She can't fight. She can't leave. She can't talk about it. And so, unfortunately, there is no psychopathology. There is just a process, a pattern of unjust relationships. I, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. The system and the legal system has have to be looked at. And I just want to add something to what you said. Should I, should I repeat some, some of that? Yeah, you were talking about uh, paranoia and about the fact that the, the, the DSM defines some of these as disorders. Some of the I'm just things. Gonna, uh, I'm going to demystify for people who are, it's not the, the Hebrew to translate. There is a manual that is used by those who work in the profession of psychology and psychotherapy and psychiatry. And in that manual, uh, we're just talking about which of these, um, yeah, which, which diagnoses might be able to be applied. And so, right. Go right ahead. So we talked about narcissism and we talked about paranoia. It might be true. The numbers don't explain it. Um, what was, what was the, the legal, the legal system? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So just, just something that I wanted to add women like, uh, like the story that I read and all the other stories. I mean, imagine that she calls the police, right? I mean, this is supposedly what she's supposed to do. She calls the police and she says, help me. I can't wear what I want. I can't dye my hair the color that I want. I don't have money. I don't know where our bank account is in. He curses me every day and he doesn't hear my opinion when we watch the news and he doesn't let me, you know, leave the house with the car. What would the police say to her, you know, in that phone call? Be like, lady, get your marriage in order. You know why you're calling me. Okay. Because it's not something that is existing in one point in time. It's a pattern of behavior and it's something you're right. It's something tango in the marriage, but because it's like this, the escalation of those behaviors, 
she goes the other direction. I mean, she, she gets weaker and weaker and she loses contact with reality because if she has no one to talk to or no one to echo the behaviors with, she doesn't even know that it's pathological. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take the questions that were of those who had the, uh, the three hands that were raised before, Jeff and Anita and also Gil. I'm gonna take all three of those questions, have them uh, say, say them and I'll repeat the questions into the microphone. And then Ilana, I'll have you answer whatever you can of that. And then we need to move to Mariv. And Ilana's still going to be around. She's not going anywhere. She'll be here through the concert. If you haven't yet gotten a ticket, there will be tickets at the door. The concert begins at 8.15. Clearly there's so much more to talk about. Let's take these questions, Jeff, first. Okay, so the first question that we're taking in is, uh, so 40 years ago, Jeff worked in a battered women's shelter in Israel, the first, the um, and and the question is, has anything been set up as these young men are growing up to support their uh, uh, growing up and being educated? Um, did I get that correct? Okay, great. And then the second question. So ultimately the question is, what is happening to the children who are experiencing abuse in these relationships? What are the laws in regard to social work and what can be the legal response to the children who are suffering in these particular relationships? And uh, Gil, do you wanna throw out a question also? So in places where these laws have been passed, in the few states, it, granted that it was recent, have we seen anything uh, that's been, um, <clears throat> that, that might be uh, counted for, accounted for as some sort of a response, progress, that sort of a thing um, uh, in the aftermath of the passage of those laws? I'll start from the end. <clears throat> so other than Hawaii and New York, also New Zealand and Britain passed similar laws of coercive control without physical violence. Uh, on its own. It's too soon to see any precedent or any cases tried at court, but from what I know or believe about the law, it is representative of what our culture thinks is right and wrong. It is written there with words and with a name and with a phenomena, and already it says what we believe in, even if there hasn't been even one case that's been tried according to that law. So having a law is already better than not having one in terms of you know the words and the phenomena and what it represents. I hear the discourse already around Israel and around the US about this phenomena existing, happening, that it's normal that, not, not that the phenomena is normal, but that it's normal to have it because so many couples experience it. So that's already a change that you can see even without a case going into, into court. So that's to your question. About young men and what, what can be done. So I have to add, we, di we didn't talk about this, but I have the privilege and the honor to be the head of a foundation that uh, that's cause is the prevention of violence in Israel. It's new, it's three months old. And before that, there was this huge initiative in Israel for two years thinking how to do prevention of violence, thinking exactly about young fathers and how do we start it from the get-go? I mean, how do we start it before, right before marriage and into the beginning of marriage and into the beginning of parenthood so that we don't look back, you know, 10 or 20 years after and saying, oh, you know, now we need to deal with the situation. So we're talking about prevention in Israel now. It is the biggest thing. So yes, definitely happening. And you asked about the children. Not all the women I interviewed had children. And so coercive control happens whether it's just the two of them or there are children or the children left. Social work, yes, has to come in when there's abuse with children. And I think it does happen but women get no protection unless there's physical violence in terms of shelters. I don't know how it is in the US, but Israel doesn't have enough of them 
So she can't house all those cases. It goes by severity. And as a society, we see severity in physical signs. So, Dr. Kfarden, we could talk about this for a very long time, but ultimately what we have to say to you is thank you on behalf of every woman whose story you have listened to. Thank you for being that shofar. Thank you for coming to us for those three years and now coming back and telling the stories of all of these women. This is not the end, not the end of this conversation, not the end of this work. It's just the very tip of the iceberg. There is so much more. Please amplify these stories, right? That's the beginning of what you can possibly do. Continue to build upon this work by building your own intimate relationships in this community. We're about to move into Mariv. Please don't all just up and leave. We at least need a minion here. Uh, we need uh, to stay in this room for that Mariv service for just about, mm, takes us about 12 minutes to go through it and we'll end with a Havdalah. The concert that's taking place upstairs at 8.15, thanks to the generosity of uh, a very large grant that the Cantor's Assembly um, gets through Mayor Kaz's it's very complicated, but through Merkaz, through Karen Kayemet Israel, uh, and also another anonymous foundation, it has been made possible for every dollar from here on out uh, that has been contributed to the concert and in the tickets that are bought from here on out to go towards that foundation. So we are already raising thousands and any ticket you haven't bought yet, any contribution that you make will go towards that foundation and Dr. Kvarden's work. So we thank you, and I think you deserve a round of applause for at least that. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA.com. LA.org.